0: Okay, our scripture text today is Matthew 16, verse 24. As you're turning there, I asked uh, Dale whether it was okay to preach on this. He said, "Um, yeah, just don't say anything too uncomfortable. And so I said, okay, that's fine. I just won't talk about Jesus or sin. And... um, but then he said, "Well, you know, I mean, what can they do to you? They fire you? So I mean, you say whatever you want." And so, um, in all seriousness, it is it is a tough text. If you spend only any time here, um, you, it's one of those texts where you are just like, is there a way I can sort of confuse this or push this back in the box so that I don't really have to have to deal with it and. Uh, there's that, you remember that passage or that text in the Westminster Confession of Faith where it says, um, not all things in Scripture are equally plain, but those things that are necessary for us to know are so clearly propounded in one part of Scripture or another so that um, whether you're learned or unlearned, um, you can know that stuff, okay? Well, this text, right? it's in both of the other synoptic Gospels verbatim, Okay, and it's situated in exactly the same context. So you have Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter's uh, confession that Jesus is the Christ, and then um, Jesus' prophecy that he's going to go to the cross and and be raised. Peter saying, "No, don't do that." Okay, then our text, and then we have the transfiguration. All the same, every synoptic gospel. If you're looking for what propounded looks like, that's the definition of propounded. Okay? And so Jesus, Jesus wants us to get this. This is for us to know. It's for us to live. And so uh, let's look at this hard text and see what the Lord would have us know. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, you're so good, you're so awesome. And you have gathered your people here today because you want them to hear your word. And so, Lord, I pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to to make your word plain to us, make it clear, propound it on our hearts. And transform us more and more into your likeness, and have more and more of the affection that we ought to have as your disciples. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So, do you want to be a supa dupa paratroopa, or a dirty, nasty leg? That's, uh, that's the question that they ask you when you get on the ground at basic airborne school. And everybody, uh, especially on day one, uh, has exactly the same instinctive answer. Nobody wants to be a dirty, nasty leg, right? Everybody wants to be a super-duper paratrooper, and they, and they, they do say it that way. It's really kind of funny, weird, but, but that's how they do it. Um, but as the intensity of the training increases... And especially as you put on that real parachute and then you get on the plane, sometimes things can change. What you understood in concept becomes increasingly practical. And every jumper, it's interesting, every jumper, whether whether it's their first jump, whether it's their fifth jump, whether it's their their hundredth jump, okay and whether they're religious or not, when, when they're getting ready for a jump, like, yeah, chaplain, can you pray for me? Can you pray for us? Oh, the chaplain's on here. We're safe. Okay? All right? But, but there is this, there's this nerves that get you. All right? And, and the reason is because as much as it may be fun or cool to jump out of a plane, it's scary. It's, it is genuinely dangerous. When, when I was, uh, when I did... Jumping out of planes with the Air Force a long time ago, what they decided that what was cool was to show you all the possible malfunctions in a video before you jumped out of the plane. Okay? On the Army, they just give you a practical experience of what it feels like to land a bunch of times over and over and over. So you know just how, how painful it can be and how, how much potential there is uh, for things to go wrong. Uh, my first jump was actually with the Air Force about 20 years ago. I had a, I've been afraid of heights for as long as I can remember. I think it's because of my younger brother. Um, but peer pressure, it's even stronger than, than your fear of heights. Mine, anyway. Okay. And I wasn't about to be a coward. And, and so I got on the plane. And, but, but even with all that resolve, things changed when I got on the plane. Uh, it was my turn to get up to the door. And I intended to move towards the door. But my body would not move towards the door. It was stuck, paralyzed, frozen. It was, it was like it was saying, hey, that is not for me. People, are men are not, not born to fly. It's a bad idea. Don't do that. In my body, I don't know if you've ever encountered this, it can shut down your brain. Even though your, no, your brain is determined, oh, don't be a coward, man, don't be a coward. You can do it. Do the thing they taught you. Your body says no, and it shuts it down. And so I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I prayed. And somehow, my body released itself. It got up. It exited the door. And I endured, and they took a video of this. My mom's got it. It was the most dangerous, chaotic jump I've ever had. Um, and somehow somehow I got to the ground and I was still alive. But the point is, as soon as I, I cross that magic threshold, that, that huge vacuum outside the door, it sucks you right out. As soon as you get there, you're gone. But as soon as that happens, you're committed. I was committed. It didn't matter if I had second thoughts if my body decided to freeze up again, it didn't matter if my chute opened or not. I was out. And as soon as I made that transition from the security of the ground and the plane to the insecurity of the air and a backpack, there wasn't any going back. And I think that's informative for our text here. In the simplest sense, what we have here is a question of commitment. It's like that decision to jump out of the plane. Or in more Christian terms, it's the question, are you a disciple of Christ? Because Jesus says, this is what. This is what a disciple of Christ looks like. And that is first, self-denial. Verse 24a says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Who's heard of Dr. Phil? Anybody? There you go. Young guys know of Dr. Phil. I didn't expect that. Dr. Phil... Um, when I was coming out of college, was, was coming into his time. He was, he was, it was his breakout moment. Um, Oprah had just introduced him to the world, and he seemed to me like a fount of wisdom. I mean, he just had an answer for, for everything. He was the Bible answer man, for, answer man for, for life's problems. But he wasn't referring to the Bible. Okay, And so, so I decided, let me see what I can learn from this guy. So I picked up his newest book. It was t- called Self Matters and it was meant to be medicine for those self-esteem deprived souls out there i was a child of the early self-esteem movement but dr phil he was he was advancing that movement to a whole new level it was and it just felt great he said we were special he said i was special we all had something significant to contribute in this world something we had to contribute in this world, or else the world is going to be less. How many of you young kids have heard that today? A lot of you kids have heard that. Okay. We really mattered, or more specifically, I really mattered. Self-matter seemed uh, to bring all that to a head in a fuller and more self-centered and aggrandizing way than I had ever heard before. Every reader was entitled to their full glory. And it was easy to take in. It felt good. It was like, tell me more, Dr. Phil. It was like a man who was offered, say, three wishes. In his first, he says, I haven't eaten for 40 days and I'm starving. I just wish these stones could be loaves of bread so I could eat and be satisfied. And in the second, he says, I don't feel like these people respect me. I just wish something incredible would happen so that they could see and appreciate how special and awesome I am. And then the third, he says, I wish I could be crowned king of the whole world so people would appreciate that I'm the best and most important person in the whole world. And that's how it should be, right? Wishes. Answered wishes. I mean, we are so special. We're awesome. We're really great, right? We're not, not actually that great. But what if there was a case where someone really was that great? What if they were entitled to all of those things? Full satisfaction all the time. Full adoration and worship all the time. And genuinely greater than all the rest of the world. And the King of Kings, past, present, and future. Well, then it would be weird to wish for any of those things. They would already belong to them. You know what would be even more weird? For them to deny themselves of those things that already justifiably belong to them. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. He's God, but He took on human flesh. He is the eternal Word that spoke all creation and life into existence, but He suffered hunger and thirst and pain and death. He is the all powerful God who lifts up kings and lays them low, but he suffered ridicule and execution at the hands of his own subjects. In other words, Jesus denied himself. And that's an almost inconceivable concept to us today. It's why immediately after Peter professed Jesus' true identity, that he's the Christ, he heard his near term plans to take up the cross, Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And I think today we think the same way about ourselves, but in our our, our self-esteem, saturated stupor, we we put ourselves in the place of the Lord. We say, far be it from me, Lord, that shall never happen to me. And as a result, Jesus rebuked of Peter belongs to us as well. Verse 23 could say, you delusional, self-centered, and overly self-entitled generation, get behind me, Satan. And why? Well, because because we're not that great. But not just because of that, because because self doesn't matter as much as Dr. Phil said, but because Jesus, who, who really did matter, and does matter more than anyone else in the world, denied Himself. And He's equipping us in His call for us to deny ourselves for something far more than our self-centered entitlement can offer us. And that brings us to point to the cross. Verse 24 continues, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Now this is the place where we perhaps do the most harm to this text the most grievous error is the one where we conflate our cross with christ's cross it's when we say that our taking up our cross is somehow in parallel to christ taking up his cross so we're either replicating the salvific work of christ for ourselves earning our own salvation a kind of meritorious sacrifice, something like purgatory before death, or we're participating in his once-for-all and 100% completed work. Neither of these are in view here at all. There's certainly a likeness to Jesus' cross, but this likeness is one of analogy, not replication or addition. The Scriptures are abundantly clear that only the one man, Jesus Christ, was capable of performing that salvific work on the cross for our sins, and His atoning sacrifice was accepted in full. Nothing more is needed, nor can anything more be added than what Christ has already done in His once-for-all and completed work on the cross. On another front... Sometimes we talk about this cross-bearing in terms of some hardship, some incremental hardship that weighs on us in particular. Perhaps it's a physical handicap, the burden of a a strong temptation, poverty, or something taken up voluntarily, like, like abstinence or sacrificial giving. We say, this is my cross to bear. It's typically viewed as that little more extra That extra suffering, that extra hardship that is either the stuff of this life, it's just been inflicted upon us, or that we've decided to take up voluntarily for the sake of our neighbor or even for Christ. And many of those things are good. It's good to give sacrificially. It's good to to lean into hard things. But those things are more representative of the incremental aspects of general suffering and self-denial than what we have in view here with the cross. The cross is the culmination of, or the completion of, self-denial. Or better, and what that complete self-denial gives way to. You see, the concept of taking up your cross in the ancient Near East wasn't so much metaphorical as it was literal. There's no sense of an incremental cross, a little extra version of sacrifice. It was a one-way ticket to death it was different even than our modern death row and that it was painful throughout it was public it was humiliating it offered no chance of appeal no chance of parole or diversion but only pain death and a curse to take up your cross was a one-way trip to the most excruciating and humiliating end that it was possible for a man to suffer and that obviously gets at self-denial how could anyone who had any concern for holding on to their old life, sign up for the certain end of themselves. But in the same way, it speaks to an irrevocable sense of commitment. As one commentator puts it, this is not a call for a mild asceticism or a little more asceticism, but to renounce your right to life. It's to say, even if following Christ means my humiliation, even if it means It means everything. Even if it means death, I'm committed and I will not turn back. I cannot, I cannot turn back. And so what do we do with this? Well, what I'd like to do is is just stew in it with you for a little bit. The central question is, are you committed? This is what discipleship looks like. Jesus says, if anyone wants to, come after me. It's a decision decision. Be my disciple. Then do this. Deny yourself and commit even to the point of death to follow me. So how are you doing? It's not always that easy to tell these days. When you're jumping out of a plane, you're either in the plane or you're out the plane. It's very clear. But we live in a pretty comfortable, non-confrontational, polite kind of world. We can live a pretty Christian-looking life without ever exiting the door, or certainly at least without making a habit of jumping out of planes, jumping out of that door. And so how do you know where you really stand? Well, what are you dying for? It's another way of getting at this. And I think it's quite clarifying. Just, just like your bank, your bank statement or your schedule, it says a lot about what really matters to you. And the same is is here. This really came to the fore for me. I was reading a, a book on, on uh, suicide in the military. Suicide's a very big problem in the military. Um, it's increasing in our country as well. Depression and suicidal ideation um, is a particular category of counseling statistics I have to report every month, and it is always the highest number of counseling statistics that I report of all the different categories every month. In 2020, there were 15 suicides in the 82nd Airborne Division. It is ranked as the top killer of soldiers in the Army for many of the years that we've been at war in the past 20 years. More than IEDs, more than artillery, more than transportation accidents, more than combat, suicides. And as a result, every month, The Secretary of Defense meets with the most senior leaders from across the branches of the military to go over each and every new suicide. Each branch goes around the table, taking turns, reporting on the details of each case, the person's family, their social situation, their rank, location, occupation, work performance, etc., every indicator they can think of, and then ultimately, how did they die? It's laborious. It's painful. And after they finish one, they move on to the next one, trying to identify anything that might curb the trend. Well, this book, so that it could give its readers a sense of that experience, goes on to detail one of the actual cases. And as I started reading these cases, it's immediately clear just how complicated this stuff is. Suicide is tragic. I think it's the most tragic kind of death. But it's so complicated. People, people choose to take their lives for so many different reasons. And yet, when people choose how to die, how they die is quite revealing. Here's just one example. A soldier was stationed in South Korea. He had been there for about eight months while his wife and two kids were back in Texas. Over time, he began to withdraw from his friends and co-workers, as well as his wife and his children. Gradually, he found himself in bed with another woman. His chain of command didn't know that at the time, but they did notice a steeper and steeper decline in his work performance. So they tried to intervene, but things continued to get worse. Behind the scenes, he developed a more antagonistic relationship with his wife, and eventually he suspected and accused her of cheating on him. Eventually, his chain of command learned about some of these home life problems and decided to give him some leave to try and patch things up. And so he returned home. When he got home, he proceeded to restrain his wife in their living room in a chair, and then he hung himself in front of her. She said his dying words were, none of this would have happened if you were there, and I'm going to make you watch me die. You will never forget what he said it's tragic they're all tragic every single one but how this man chose to die also said a lot about what he was committed to it said a lot about what was most important to him in life and the author points out it's the same for all the others it's also the same for the man whose name stands over the door of the room these senior military leaders are are meeting to discuss suicide. That man's name is Lieutenant James Gardner. He was a platoon leader in Vietnam who was charged with relieving another platoon who had been pinned down by a strongly fortified enemy. His Medal of Honor citation says this about how he died. Leading the assault and disregarding his own safety, Lieutenant Gardner charged through a withering hail of fire across an open rice paddy. On reaching the first bunker, he destroyed it with a grenade and without hesitation dashed to the second bunker and eliminated it by tossing a grenade inside. Then crawling swiftly along the dike of a rice paddy, he reached the third bunker. Before he could arm a grenade, the enemy gunner leapt forth, firing at him, Lieutenant Gardner instantly returned fire and killed the enemy gunner at a distance of six feet. Following the seizure of the main enemy position, he reorganized the platoon to continue the attack. Advancing to the new assault position, the platoon was pinned down by an enemy machine gun and placed in a fortified bunker. Lieutenant Gardner immediately collected several grenades and charged to the enemy position. Firing his rifle as he advanced to neutralize the defenders, he dropped a grenade into the bunker and vaulted beyond. As the bunker blew up, he came under fire again, rolling into a ditch to gain cover, he moved toward the new source of fire. Nearing the position, he leapt from the ditch and advanced with a grenade in one hand and firing his rifle with the other. He was gravely wounded just before he reached the bunker, but with a last valiant effort, he staggered forward and destroyed the bunker and its defenders with a grenade. Although he fell dead on the rim of the bunker, his extraordinary actions so inspired the men of his platoon that they resumed the attack and completely routed the enemy. It's a story of incredible courage, selfless service, sacrifice. And according to witnesses, his last words were simply, it was the best I could do. And in that, the author is pointing up this extraordinary irony between the two. The one took what he didn't have to take in order to inflict pain on another. And the other gave everything that he had to give in order to save another a whole lot of others it's the fact that although all men die we don't all die for the same reasons and how we die has a way of revealing our real reasons it was no different for our lord he he didn't have to take on human flesh he didn't have to suffer thirst pain ridicule and fake justice at the hands of immoral and rebellious subjects but he denied himself he subordinated his will to his father, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And as a result, he voluntarily committed to take up his cross and give his life to die to save another. Many, many others. And all of those others, sinners, in his dying breaths, affirmed that attention. He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, "It is finished. He said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so what is Jesus really committed to? He's he's committed to accomplishing His Father's will, which is your salvation. And nothing, not even even the self-denial to the point of death would stand in His way. And so what about you? What are you really dying for today? The accumulation of personal property, prosperity, posterity, work or promotion, your country, masking, vaxxing, none of these are necessarily bad. They're not mutually exclusive, but they're also not necessarily and ultimately Christ. And that's what Jesus is confronting us with here. In self-denial and the cross, He's calling us to make that irrevocable commitment to Christ. Christ to give ourselves, not for a little while, not for a little bit, or a little more, when we feel like it, for as long as we feel like it, but the whole thing. It's the answer, what are you dying for with Christ? Not my will, but yours be done. To what Paul captures so well in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. So now, maybe you're saying what I was saying when I was interacting with this text. Uncle, man, that's good, that's right, but that's, that's you, big, man. Even in my best days, even in, in my most contrite, humble days, I'm not there. I see what I ought to be, but I am not what I ought to be. Well, the good news is that's where an honest Christian should be. It means you're really getting Christ's call of discipleship, and you're a good company. Every honest Christian struggles here, and so did Jesus' first disciples. Remember how the crowds praised Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, but disappeared at his trial and crucifixion. Everybody disappeared. Even that very loudly, boisterous uh, guy, Peter, who declared, though they all fall away because of you, Lord, I, I will never fall away. And yet also, each in their end, appear to have given their lives ultimately over to gruesome deaths for the sake of Christ. And so while this is hard, it's messy. Discipleship is messy. It's never perfect. It's not a straight line but this is also a call that Jesus means for us. And so how do we get there? Well, let me give you a word of encouragement and a challenge. For your encouragement, self-denial and cross-bearing sound terrible. Everybody excited about self-denial, cross-bearing? No. But it's it's only when we ignore the alternative and the reward. Just as I said in the beginning, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, that's scary stuff. I think it's crazy stuff. It's genuinely dangerous. Don't try it at home. And so, so why jump? Why exchange the security of this life for the insecurity of that one? Well, because the plane's going down. The whole thing, ground, people, many kingdoms, all of it is on a countdown to judgment and no one and nothing will be able to survive it. The only possibility of life, the only real security is actually in the parachute of Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying and what follows in our text. Verse 25 and following. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And so what do you do? Well, You jump. That's the challenge and invitation Jesus is giving us here. If you're not a Christian today, give your life to Christ and find your life. And if you are, then keep on jumping. Keep on giving it to Christ and discover the fullness of it. That's the last thing I want to bring to you here. The other thing this jumping business speaks to is that that, that fullness of life. They say everybody uh, who makes it through basic airborne course school is airborne qualified. But only those who actually are in an airborne unit in jumping all the time are actually airborne. So, what's the point? Well, we've got a lot of qualified Christians, as it were lethargic Christians. They're Christians, they're saved. Christ's completed work has done all the work for our salvation, but, but the call of Christ is to more. And that more is so good. And by the way, thinking that you're, you're not one of those lethargic Christians, like you've, you've got, we're all lethargic Christians. Okay? We're all there. So let me just leave you one more illustration. My oldest daughter, Miriam, somewhere out there, she just had her prom. My wife, And I and Jacob all got to go as chaperones. She was very well chaperoned. (laughs) And you know what happens at proms? Uh, These kids, they do this stuff. There's this music, it's dancing music. And some of these kids, they dance. Craziest thing. But not everybody dances. Just like your standard Dutch wedding, there are a whole lot of people that are anchored to the wall. And the chairs. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> they they're sort of there. They're sort of participating, but they're really just watching. Sometimes worse, they're just judging. Look at that guy that doesn't know how to dance. Look at that, look at that guy, look at that girl make fools of themselves trying to dance. It's like the folks that are in the aircraft who are just riding along. They were there, but they're avoiding opportunities to actually jump. They have one foot that is too far planted on the ground, and one hand that is too far attached to the wall. But Christ has called us to more. And the more, this is what I want you to hear, the more is so good. He's opened the door and called us not just for watching, but living. We've got to get out there and dance. And I know what you're thinking, I can't dance. I've talked to people that know how to dance. They've seen me try to dance. They've told me. They've confirmed I can't dance. I feel like a fool when I'm out there. Me too. They've definitely said that. Ask my wife. It's from from the very beginning. But Christ can raise the dead. The question here is, will you trust him to grow you into a more faithful, vibrant, and fruitful disciple? Will you trust the one who promised to complete the work he has begun in you to complete it? And if so, then we've got to get off the sidelines and we've got to dance. We've got to jump. We've got to become jumpy boys and jumpy girls, as they say. Not just airborne qualified, not just Christian confession professed, not just memorized, but active status, fully progressed, vibrant, living and active disciples who are living for Christ because Christ is their life. And that, brothers and sisters, that's the good life. That's the real life. And that is a life that's worth dying for. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to speak to us today, to awaken our hearts where we are dormant, Lord, where we are lethargic, where we maybe don't know who you are, Lord, I pray, open our eyes. Awaken us to the vitality, the life that is Christ. Capture us, Lord, with the life that you have for us, so far so that we just are eager to exchange whatever little bit we think we have here, Lord, for that. Make us committed, Lord. Make our church committed. Make make, make all your Christians that committed. Wouldn't it be awesome, Lord, if everybody was out dancing and jumping? Lord, please make that a reality. Help us grow. Help us grow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me now and let's, let's respond with singing For the Cause.